Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We are uh, going into another one of these amazing stories in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke has just been on a roll <laughs> uh, for several weeks, but really since the beginning of chapter 5, story after story after story about what's going on in the life of Christ and the early disciples. And today we arrive at this momentum point in verse 12 where Jesus prays to the Father and then he calls his 12 apostles. It's a big day in the life of the church, huge day. Read with me, verses 12 to 16, and then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we will unpack and dive in. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he calls his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Pray with me, would you? Father, um, the words that I spoke a minute ago are true. This is a momentous day in the life of the church. And so, Father, I pray that as we, we look into a story, just a few verses that talk about men, most of whom we, we don't really know a lot about, but, Father, these were the men that you and the Holy Spirit and Jesus prayed about all night and talked about all night that were chosen by Christ to be the foundation of the church, and they still are the foundation of the church. So, Father, I just pray today that the words you've given to me, the ideas and thoughts, that you would just use them, change them, do whatever. Um, because they're just thoughts. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just teach us some amazing things about what Jesus did in this process, who these men are, why, why, why we should be thankful that they are the foundation of the church. I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Now, most of you know, who know me a little bit, you know I'm a bit of a sports fan. Um, two sports in particular, um, hockey and golf. And, and it's kind of because, it, like, I grew up in Toronto, and it's kind of a seasonal thing, right? So when, when I was growing up, uh, hockey, big time, I mean, Toronto Maple Leaf fan, please pray for me. Um, that's in my past. But I mean, you're, you're growing up, and, and hockey is the dream of every kid, right? And so I played organized hockey. And, and the idea was, I mean, you play the season, right? I mean, I used to, as August ended, I was like, okay, got to get start running, got to get in shape. And then you'd go to practices first, hockey practice, and then um, then the, the season would start, and hopefully your team would really do well. And, and the hope was, of course, you'd get into the playoffs and your season wouldn't be extended. But if your season ended, golf, right? And it's funny how that's still the tradition even in the NHL today, right? I mean, if you win the Stanley Cup, you go to Disneyland, right? But if, if you don't, you go golfing. It's really the pattern of hockey. But of course, for, for me growing up, I mean, I was so dedicated to hockey. There was also ball hockey, street hockey throughout the summer, right? So if it wasn't golfing, I was... Now, what it was interesting was is there was an interesting selection process when it came to picking your players in hockey that I was thinking about. First is, is in organized hockey, at least, uh, there were tryouts, right? So you would go out for a team, you know, I was playing rep hockey most of the time, and you'd go out, and there'd be like 30, 35, maybe 40 guys playing, you know, trying to get on a roster of 12 forwards and two goalies. And so you had to be good enough to make the team, which was pretty stressful, and you had to really work hard to get on that team. It was, but that 
what was, you had to basically beat out other people in order to get chosen. It's the way it works today. And we're pretty good with that in most places. It's disappointing when you don't get chosen. Street hockey's a little different. With street hockey and ball hockey, what usually happens is you have an, you know, two, two of the guys that have organized the, the, the street hockey and called all the guys out to play. You know, they'll be appointed the captains, and then all the other players will be standing in front of them, and then they'll start picking, right? And it's, it's also a scary choosing process because you know that the really good guys are going to go first. And what you don't want to be is one of the last guys standing because you know that you're, you're not that good. It's embarrassing, really, right? So some of us, you know, have figured out a, a nicer way. And so we get together as men for ball hockey, uh, floor hockey on Monday nights, which is tomorrow night, by the way, if you're interested. Um, what we do is we put all the sticks in the middle, right? And, and then one guy just starts throwing sticks out each side, and that's how we pick the teams, right? Well, that system doesn't really work out too well because you stand back afterward, you know, you look at it and you go, that team is really strong and this team is going to get killed, right? So there seems to need to be some adjustments. I tell you that simply because I, I want you to, us to keep that in mind a little bit uh, about how we in our world today pick people for what we might consider our dream team, right? Uh, whether it's a business, whether it's a hockey team, whether any sports team, how we in the world today go about picking people, choosing people, the criteria we use versus what we see Jesus doing. It's remarkable. And so let's have a look at this passage today and see how Jesus chooses. A message title for today, right, is called The Dream Team because these are the guys that Jesus picked to be the leaders of his church. Let me remind you of verse 12. I'll put it on screen for you. It says this, In these days... He, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. All night. I mean, these words are intentional, right? When it, when it says all night, it means he didn't sleep. But Luke, the, the great storyteller, factician, documentarian that he is, and remember, like from the very beginning of this book, we, we've learned that Luke didn't know Jesus. He, he wasn't there following Jesus at the time that Jesus walked the earth. And so he, he went to all the eyewitnesses. He went to Mary and, and to those who did know Jesus, to the disciples that are being picked today, the apostles. And he asked them about the stories, and they recorded it all for his dear friend Theophilus, who he loved, and he wanted to be certain of his faith in Jesus Christ. But he starts with the words, in these days. And so we're not given another historical marker or anchor like Luke, again, being that factician, that's a word that I made up, by the way. Don't, don't come to me afterwards and say, that's not a real word. You know, I'm hoping that Webster's will pick up on it, but, you know, he's a documentarian. He, he wrote these things in a specific way, um, but he also gave us narratives at different times where he gave us historical markers. For example, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, in the days of Herod, a secular king, you can, you can study and understand and know when Herod actually lived, who was king of Judea, places him. There was a priest named Zechariah. Well, we can also check Jewish history. And yes, there was a priest called Zechariah at a given time of the division of Abijah. So more details. And he does that throughout this book. But not here. We can't pinpoint exactly these timings. So here is Luke is actually pointing to, I want to suggest to you something that's been going on, the buildup of what we've seen for the last four to five weeks specifically the buildup from the time that Jesus preached that amazing sermon in his hometown synagogue where afterwards they chased him to the outskirts of town and wanted to kill him. 
because they were so offended by what he said. And then all of what we've seen in chapter 5 and and last week's Sabbath stories, Luke is speaking about these days. It's at this specific time that Jesus does this. And what was really, what's the most important, significant takeaway, do you think, um, from all of these events? What, What kind of days are these days actually where Jesus decides tonight's the night that I need to go and pray? and talk to my Heavenly Father and to the Holy Spirit about what's going on here, and timing and plans. Well, the verse just prior to the one that we have on screen tells us what these days are, right? You remember how it ended last week? It says this in verse 11, But they, the Pharisees and the scribes, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Matthew records the events, Uh, interestingly, he puts it this way, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The die is cast, right? It's been set in motion. They will plot and they will scheme for months, and we're going to see it for months in the Gospel of Luke, how they can trip Jesus up. They're going to try to trick him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? They're going to do all kinds of things. Whole point being they want to catch him at a point where they can say, heretic, crucify him. And we know the story. They're going to get there. It's in these days. In these days, which is an exact time in history, where Jesus decides, I need to pray tonight. I need to pray. And it's an all-night prayer. Now listen, despite Jesus being fully God, we know theologically, right, we know and we understand that he was also fully human. He was fully a man. And I mean, without doubt, he must be feeling and sensing the attack. He must be feeling and sensing they didn't like my sermon. I've been there, right? I mean, he's got to be sensing these kind of things, the constant cynical and critical spirit of the religious leaders, He's likely sensing, quite frankly, that his death is imminent. He does know, by the way, he's God. He does know the plan. He does know that this is going to happen, right? But he must be thinking that it's now sooner than later. When he became a man, the Scripture teaches us that he humbled himself. And he took upon himself the form of a man, basically setting aside his Godly attributes. He set them aside at any particular time, including the wilderness. He could have called upon them and dealt with it right then and there. That's what Satan wanted him to do. He humbled himself, submitted himself to that which God desired him to do, and allowed him to do it and win. And so he goes to God as a man, and he's asking him in this moment of crisis, in this, he's basically asking, I want to suggest to you, is it now? Is it now that I need to choose these men? One thing we need to make very clear, Jesus is not going to prayer on this night out of fear. Not at all. Now, you and I, I mean, if you think about it, it's why many of us go to prayer, isn't it? I mean, we go to prayer out of fear when we're afraid of something 
We fear unknown circumstances. What will or will not happen? Come on, has anybody got the T-shirt? Like, you know, you're thinking about, well, if, if this doesn't happen, then this will happen, and, oh, and this person's sick, and my mom, and, and, and it just goes on. And after a while, you know, you start feeling the tension in your stomach, and you can't sleep at night, let alone pray at night like you should be doing, right? You're just running these details over in your mind. You become more and more fearful. And what's the result of fear? Sick. <laughs> Sickness. He's going to his heavenly Father in prayer all night, but not out of fear whatsoever. It's remarkable. In fact, one thing he is doing for us, I think we should see in this whole story, is, and we don't have time to unpack it a lot, but hopefully in community group this week we will, but one of the things Jesus is doing by going to prayer like this all night about an important decision like this, it's not out of fear. It's not because, oh, they're going to kill me, so I've got to get this done really fast. He knows it's not going to happen immediately. Not exactly the time or the day, but he knows it's not going to happen immediately. He's modeling for you and I the fact that in every day, in every circumstances, whatever comes our way, we need to be fully dependent on God. That's what he's modeling in an amazingly beautiful way. In Matthew, actually in chapter 6, I won't put it on screen, but just give you some ideas from verses 25 to 34 would be great to look at. He commands his followers, which is You and I, by the way, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, he commands us not to worry, not to have fear. He even goes as far as saying that worrying is characteristic of someone who's an unbeliever. Hmm. So what was Jesus praying for, do you think? What was he praying for? Well, it's what he prayed for all the time, and it's what he was always looking for, and it's what we're encouraged to do in every circumstance of life, God's will. Now, you know, I don't know how many times people have come up to me and said, I, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. <laughs> and they're asking me, like, you know, what? We have access to our Heavenly Father who absolutely knows what His will is for you and for me. Jesus is modeling this. He wants to know His timing and his choice. And what other thing that I love about this, and it's about you know, being in plurality and leadership like we are at the Rock Church and Eldership, he's doing this in, in team, <laughs> in community. He was praying with the Father and the Holy Spirit about the plan. What plan, you ask? Well, the plan that they had before the foundation of the world. I remember being in seminary, and, and we were in this amazing class taught by this guy from Newfoundland, amazing professor. I don't know why I keep saying he's from Newfoundland, but it was the accent. It was kind of funny. But he was brilliant theologian. And we, we got into this thought about, okay, like, like it was about, you know, predestination and, you know, God knowing the future and, and, and just trying to figure out that here we are as humans. We're stuck in time. God isn't. The beginning, the middle, and the end, as far as God is concerned, is already there. And yet for you and I, it's like, We try to understand these things we don't know. But they established the plan before the foundation of the world that they would create the world. We would be created. They knew we would fall. They knew that there would need to be an atonement. They were Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by the way, from eternity, today, and for eternity. They will remain this triune God. And so the plan has always been there to send Jesus into this world to rescue us, to die on the cross in your place, in my place, for our sins, to raise again from the dead so we could be given forgiveness and eternal life through his shed blood. Amen? Yeah. 
But then they also knew, he knew, that he would be ascending. And there would be something called the church age. And there would need to be leaders for that church age. I mean, from the moment that he defeats Satan in in the wilderness, what is he doing? Calling disciples and teaching them, preparing them for the work of ministry that's to come. So this was, this was a, like a, a huge, important moment. And Jesus wanted to know who he should choose to further his work here after he leaves. <laughs> the dream team. <sighs> he knew the plan. He was dependent on God for the timing and the choice. So listen, do you know why at the end of the day, I was thinking about this week, why at the end of the day, you and I as Christians should never fear? Listen, I do, come on. But why at the end of the day, you and I should never fear? Do you know why? Because we know the plan too, don't we? It's right here, it's in the book. We know how this story ends, we know who wins. Why do we fear? Oh, I've been challenged the last three or four days, I've just been slapping myself, why do I fear? Why do I worry about, and then I started to just take notes about the, the crazy little things during the day. And I, of course, I'm Mr. Smarty Pants. I don't say that that's fear. But all of a sudden, I'm going, you know what? I'm full of fear. It's ridiculous. Lord, help me. And so, let's look at this carefully. Again, it says, and when day came, in verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So Jesus prays through the night, likely, likely as I said, about eight to ten hours. He must be exhausted. He calls his disciples together, and, and I'm thinking, listen, we need to understand that there were probably hundreds of them that he called together. Right? And so, again, it says that we're, now we're going to choose the dream team, and he's calling hundreds. Now, why do I say hundreds? Well, if you go back and you look, just even when he, remember when he called Peter? Before he calls Peter, he's walking on the beach, and there were so many of them pressing in on him. He had to say to Peter, Let, let's put out your boat and get into it, and let's go out a few hundred yards so my voice can carry across the water so they can hear me because there's lots of them. Lots of them who have been following him and listening to him. But then after he heals the leper, remember the leper that he healed in chapter 5? We read these words. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered together to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. That's in chapter 5, verse 15. So great crowds. Many people are following him. And then in a few chapters, chapter 10 in Luke, which might take us a couple of months to get there at the speed we're going, he's going to send another 70 out. And he's going to pick from, so there's got to be hundreds, hundreds of men and women here in front of him him at this time. So early in the morning, Jesus calls all of his disciples together and he chooses 12. (laughs) I can't imagine like being there and like being in the front row or the middle row. Again, it's like, like, I just think about it and go like, like how many of them are kind of going, don't pick me. Like, what is this all about? They don't even know what they're getting picked for, do they? There's no explanation at this point in time, by the way, I'm picking you to be my fellow leaders, you know, foundations of the church, and by the way, you're all going to die for it. Like, that job description wasn't there, was it? No, he starts naming them apostles. So what we have here are all the disciples, which in the Greek literally means a learner or an apprentice. That's what a disciple is. And so at this point, he's been teaching them. They've been learners. They've been apprentices. And, and then, now we have apostolos. 
which means, in the Greek, literally means simply two words, sent ones, but also in certain contexts, which this would be one of them, it means, or it has the distinction of being sent as messengers, as representatives of the one sending you, and by the way, with his authority. Rabbis sent apostles. And that's, that was the distinction and what was known by that. This event, however, and we learn from the rest of Scripture, was really unique and significant in many ways. But it was a result of this text, really, and many others that we will see in the Gospel of Luke and also in the epistles, that we understand that these 12 men, hear me, are the capital A apostles. Just these 12. Well, for now. One's a traitor. These are the capital A apostles, handpicked by Jesus. We're we're following Jesus from the time that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist through his life to his death on the cross and his resurrection, which is the reason why when Judas betrays Jesus, Matthias is picked because that was the criteria, that he had to have been one who was with them from the beginning and had witnessed these things. So that means, listen, listen, this is going to be a shock to some of you, the Apostle Paul is a small-a apostle. Now, some people would like to say that, no, that wasn't, Matthias wasn't Jesus' pick. Paul was. No. Barnabas is a small-a apostle. So there are small-a apostles in the New Testament, and we see a number of them. But these are the capital-A guys, and therefore they are the dream team. They're the dream team. So let's meet them. Let's have a look at who they are. Verse 14, of course, we start with the first. Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew his brother and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew. In all of the lists of the apostles that are given, uh, Simon, whose name is also Peter, Jesus gave him his name Cephas, which means Peter, um, is listed first in all of these accounts, not because he's the most important or he's the best. As we know, if you've studied his life, he especially in the time that Jesus was alive and just as he dies, and he's not. But, but, but Jesus is kind of, it's kind of interesting. He is literally the first disciple that Jesus calls to follow him. And Jesus will say in Matthew 16, 18, which is where we get the name for our church, upon this rock, large rock, which is your testimony of faith in me, Peter, Petros, small rock, I will build my church. And so even when Jesus first chose this fisherman in the boat, he knew, he goes, he's not ready for this, but I'm going to make him number one in the lists. Remarkable what we see here. So it isn't because he's the best or Jesus' favorite, but he is the first listed. Matthew records the way this call comes a little differently, and I love this. He puts it this way. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The words that I love the most there, I will make you. It's very comforting to me. (laughs) The truth is, as you all know by now in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will have nothing to do with the religious Pharisees, scribes, or the rabbis. I mean, he does have a lot to do with them, but it's mostly critical. But he he won't have anything to do with them when it comes to picking his dream team. 
When they went looking for disciples to follow, they would first look about at pedigree, like what family are you from? Then, when, then we'd look at, okay, what college did you do, uh, um, graduate from? What rabbi did you graduate from? So they'd look at like, things like pedigree, grades, the cream of the crop, uh, to be part of their show. And you see, see, part of the idea was, as a rabbi, you wanted to pick the best students because at the end of the day, the point is, they were supposed to make you look good. Not Jesus. Not Jesus at all. This is another one of the things that they just couldn't figure out about him. It was a known fact that his disciples, listen, were, were commoners. They were Galileans. They were like from Spuzzum, right? They were from Nowhereville, right? Sorry, Spuzzum. We love you, but I mean, that's really who they were. They, they were these men from nowhere, no names, nobodies. But Jesus says, perfect. I will make them into the men that they need to be for my mission and my church. Guys, feel a little bit better about yourself now? We go low and we realize that it's not about being a super Christian or a successful person in order for Jesus to use you. In fact, it's probably the last person that Jesus is going to use. I remember being part of a, a church um, pastoral search board one time, and uh, it was an interesting. It was the first time I was, I was on an elder board. It's many years ago, and we, our, our pastor had moved on, and we needed to get a new pastor. And I was kind of shocked because, like, I was in the business world at that time, and we started getting resumes, like tons of resumes, right? Like lots of them. And I'm looking at these resumes, and there's all of these uh, these graduates from really good seminaries, you know, and they've all got MDivs or uh, some kind of equivalent in theology, and you're looking at, you know, they're, and they're all like early, like mid-20s, maybe late 20s, early 30s. There were some older guys, and, but we were looking for a young buck, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and I remember looking at them going, and then I'd read the cover letters, and, I'm, and I was in business. I got a lot of, you know, I hired a lot of people in companies that I, and, and I'm looking at these, I'm going, Guess there's something missing here. The sense of calling seem to be missing. And then we invite some, some of these, these folks to come in, these men to come in, to interview for the job. And, and I remember thinking about that, and I didn't know what I was doing really as an interviewer, but I tried. And, and I'm asking the question, by the way, could you tell me, why do you feel called to our church in this community? And it was a bit of a stunner, because some of them go, well, um, uh, there was a job posting. <laughs> I heard a phrase at that time that is really important, and I think it's important for the church today, and it is this. We need to train the called not call the trained. I think that's what Jesus was doing at that time. He did the calling, and He does the training. Amen? That's where we find our greatest and best leaders. So I think that should be comforting for all of us as His disciples, <laughs> shouldn't it? It's not up to you or to me to make ourselves better servants, better leaders, or better Christians. Oh, yeah, we, we play a role. Come on, we need to put some effort into it. No, the only thing that we need to do, really need to do, is what these early disciples did, apostles did. Follow Jesus. <laughs> Follow Him with all of our hearts and all of our minds. Be a perpetual learner and then await His call, His selection to be sent. But you've got to be a learner. You've got to be an apprentice first. So really, Peter's the classic pick, isn't he? 
right? He's a lowly fisherman who, who would suffer from foot and mouth disease over the next few years, right? He's always the first one to step up, and he, before his brain is actually engaged, his mouth is speaking, right? And he would say things, and Jesus would correct him and say, get behind me, Satan, things like that. You know, um, when things would get tough, I mean, he would act tough and brave, but then when things really got tough, he denied Jesus to a 14-year-old Jewish girl. This is who this guy is, right? And so what does Jesus do with a man like this? Well, first of all, he forgives him, and he goes to him after he ascends, and he restores him, and he calls him again and reminds him when he said to his buddies, I'm going to go fishing, come with me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Do you remember I said, I will make you into a fisher of men? Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. I think Peter got the point after three times. But that's what Jesus does with him. And, and then he sends him, he tells him, wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost comes to Peter, comes upon Peter, and he puts him in the pulpit in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches the most amazing sermon, in my opinion, of all time. Why do I say that? Well, it's the first great gospel message, and 5,000 plus people come to Jesus as a result of that sermon, as a result of the Holy Spirit cutting them to the heart, right? But he uses Peter. He uses Peter. From that point on, and for the rest of his life, this man will become a pillar of the church, leading churches, planting churches, writing New Testament letters, and finally, when it's his time to die, to be crucified, he will request to be crucified upside down because he is not worthy to die the same way as his Savior. That's what happens to a man, a lowly, uneducated fisherman like Peter when Jesus gets a hold of you. It's pretty marvelous. So nobody is talking about any of the Pharisees and scribes today, are they? Do you hear anybody talking about any of those guys in these days? I mean, no, but people are continually still talking about Peter. Uh, the fall down Peter, but also the pillar. And people will be talking about Peter every day, somewhere around the world for the rest of his life. Well, then there's Peter's brother, Andrew. And what we know about him is that he and his brother Peter were from Bethsaida. Uh, they were now living in Capernaum at this time, where they had operated a, a fishing business together. Uh, most commentators agree that Andrew lived in the shadows of his possibly older brother, Peter. Uh, in the ongoing ministry of Jesus, the four first men called here, Andrew is not part of the inner circle that we see in the future. It's Peter, James, and John, and Andrew's not part of that inner circle. But John in his gospel tells us something actually very interesting about Andrew. As an aside, it seems like he's, like he's a second, right? But something very important about Andrew that we learn, and we learn this, that he was one of the disciples of John the Baptist who heard about Jesus, and he was following John the Baptist and a disciple of his first when he first heard of Jesus. And then John records this in John 1, 40 to 41, where he says this, one of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah which means Christ. So Peter can thank his brother, Andrew, for being a missionary, don't you think? It's not insignificant who this young man was, and we don't hear much about him in Scripture after these points in the story. 
But what we also see is this, and it's true in the church today, every take-charge leader like a Peter needs an Andrew, needs a brother in Christ who doesn't need to be the upfront guy, the, the, the mouthpiece, the talking head, or the leader, but is happy to be on the dream team and play a significant backup role. Amen? That's how great teams, quite frankly, win. It's the plumbers. <laughs> It's the hard workers. It's the Andrews. And it's beautiful to see these kind of relationships. And just oh, here's another thing. Besides his name being a part of the good book, being part of the Bible, and being an apostle, there's one thing that I believe, uh, no other uh, apostle that I'm aware of, at least in my books, I think this is pretty amazing. He has a golf course named after him. St. <laughs> Andrews in Scotland. It's on my bucket list. I don't know what another apostle that's got that, so that's pretty cool. He's memorable. Well, our first two are rounded out, and, 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 and so we've seen James and John as well as Philip and Bartholomew here. We don't really have time today to, to go really deeply into all of these. Maybe again in small group we can do that. Uh, James and John play significant roles, obviously, throughout the Gospels in um, Jesus' inner circle. They were also brothers, also fishermen. Uh, John is the apostle, of course, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Book of Revelation pretty big deal. Aside from the Apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, right, along with Luke, too, with Luke and the book of Acts. James, however, uh, is, uh, there's not much about him that we know, but one thing for sure that we do know, he's the only one to have his martyrdom, his crucifixion, actually his death by um, being beheaded by the sword, uh, is recorded in the New Testament. And Luke actually records it in Acts that King Herod had him executed by the sword. It's the only one that's recorded that way. The only way that we know that others have died of crucifixion or other methods was because of church tradition. And so we think they're reliable, but that's the truth of that. They're both, James and John, interestingly, nicknamed Sons of Thunder. <laughs> and commentators, again, believe that had something to do with their fiery personalities. So John is the only apostle to have survived an attempt on his life, right? The Scripture teaches us that they tried to boil him to death, right? And he survived, and, and church tradition, again, says that he died uh, of natural causes, an old man. They're followed by Philip and Bartholomew, which is another story of the leading of the other to Jesus, right? Philip was also a disciple of John the Baptist when Jesus called him, and he immediately ran to get his good buddy Nathaniel. Now, many men in, in the New Testament, we see that you know, Simon, Peter, many had different names or two names. Nathaniel's another name for Bartholomew, who he goes and finds. And again, two men who do not play any remarkable roles, but go on to become dedicated evangelists, and both are eventually, again, according to tradition, martyred for their faith in Christ. Then we read about the last few, and it says, And Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, differentiated from Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, Matthew, we've already met and learned quite a bit about. Uh, he's the famous tax collector and author of the gospel by his name. Um, he was loyal to Jesus and the church and also died as a martyr. Then, of course, there's Thomas. I really identify with Thomas. It's my middle name. Um, apparently, he was short. I don't identify with that very much, but apparently he was. His middle name, one of his other names was Didymus, which means twin, um, and we, of course, know him from John 21. He became kind of famous or infamous. I don't think it's fair, but because of the fact that he didn't believe the disciples, that Jesus had risen from the dead, and he demanded to see the resurrected Jesus for himself, 
He was nicknamed Doubting Thomas, right? Highly unfair, but that's how we know him. He later actually became, and this is well chronicled, a missionary to India, uh, planting churches, opening orphanages, and tradition also holds that he was martyred in India. Next, we read uh, about James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, who we really know very little about. But then there's also Judas, the son of James, or also a nickname for him, Judas, not Iscariot. Like, you want to be going into communities going, by the way, I'm I'm not that Judas, right? (laughs) Look at me, I'm alive, right? That's one thing. But again, there's many of these guys that we don't know a lot about. We don't know a lot about, but they're pillars. One thing we do know is that in every single case, they went from being ordinary, ordinary men without any real great credentials for the dream team call, but they became pillars and holy and in Christ righteous men who refused to give up their faith, including to the point of death. But finally, there's also, of course, the traitor Judas Iscariot. Much thought has been given to why. Why, Jesus, why would you choose? God, why would you recommend this choice? It's a good question. Again, it's not one we have time to dive into a lot, but the truth is, is that Jesus did know. Jesus did know who he was choosing. He knew absolutely who he's choosing. And maybe, maybe it's for fulfillment of prophecy, and maybe he's showing some mercy and grace towards a man who's got this kind of potential and reputation. John tells us in chapter 6 that Jesus answered them and said this, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. This is just after he's chosen them. So he knew. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray, betray Jesus. And so you guys all know the story. As one of the twelve, Jesus was was the one who managed the money. (laughs) Again, you choose the guy, he's going to betray you, and you put him in charge of the money. And so, yeah, Jesus' disciples and 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 he himself were supported financially as they did ministry for three and a half years. Judas looked after the money, but it came to a point where, yeah, money became exceedingly important to him, but for some reason he, he didn't see Jesus for who he really was. Maybe as, as, a, as a Jewish man, maybe he was thinking, and they were all Jewish, by the way, maybe he was thinking that, come on, they're going to kill you. This is not the way to rule the world. And so he lost faith that Jesus was the one. Maybe that's it, right? So he makes a pact with the Jewish leaders for 30 pieces of silver. It's actually a significant amount of money, significant amount of money in those days. He later betrays Jesus to soldiers by kissing him, identifying him that way at the Mount of Olives. And then we read that Judas gives the money back. Is he repenting? We don't know. They buy a field with it. The religious leaders with that money, Judas hangs himself. And the Scripture describes the fact that his body fell into this field where he died. So why? Why in the world choose a man like this? Well, many reasons. God has his reasons, but certainly Jesus was being merciful, I think. It's hard to imagine, honestly, as I've said, how can someone follow Jesus so closely for three years and still betray him? This Jesus, this loving man, man, miracle worker, I think Judas needs to be, and most commentators would suggest this to you, he needs to be a warning to us. Warning to us of two things. One, small gradual failings in our lives that can 
take us away from the truth and of who Jesus is. But his his story is also a great reminder that appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. People can walk like a duck, even look like a duck, but not be saved, not truly be saved. Jesus is recorded in Matthew 7 as saying these words, on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and carry the money for the disciples and be with you for three and a half years and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Nobody wants to hear those words. Well, that leaves us with our last question, I think, for this, this morning. Last question. Why 12 men? Like, why 12? Like, why not 7? The number of perfection, right? Why not 9? Why not 24? You know, a football team. Like, why not a different number? Well, God's plans are marvelous, aren't they? And as I've said at the beginning, it's from the foundation to today and through eternity. He knew exactly what was going on. And, and it, this describes to us in clear terms, God's sovereignty, God's providence and knowledge of all things. Every Jew in the day, by the way, when Jesus called these 12, every Jew, including the 12 guys that are called forward, they they would have immediately understood the picture that Jesus was trying to display. They knew that there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? They knew that. The 12 tribes of Israel came from the 12 sons of Israel. Israel is the name that God gave Jacob. His 12 sons are, most of you, Bible study, flannel graph, Sunday school students know these names, right? They they are Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Pillars. Leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. But what they didn't know at the time but would learn, as we will begin to see more and more in the weeks that follow, is that Jesus was choosing 12 new, 12 new men to be the foundation of His new kingdom. The old was done. Officially, at this point, Jesus is saying, the old is done. He was, as He has been doing for some time now, turning everything upside down, doing everything completely backwards and different than the religious leaders thought He should be doing, turning it upside down. In fact, what Jesus was doing was turning everything right side up. This is how the new kingdom is going to look. And these 12 are the pillars of my new kingdom And next week, we're going to see what it looks like to be a member of that kingdom, the character traits of the member being a member of that kingdom. So God's plans are perfect. I love this. The Apostle John will later record what the end is going to look like. I said, we know the plan, what it will look like when Jesus comes again to establish his heavenly kingdom. He describes, look at this, a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And he describes the new Jerusalem this way. Look at it on screen with me. Read with me. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. 12. (laughs) And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city has 12 foundations. 
And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Matthias has a name on those gates. So you need to know that because one day, if you're in the kingdom now and you're in the kingdom in the future, when you're going to the New Jerusalem, you'll be able to look at the foundations and the tops and go, yeah, I understand. And God's providential plan from all of history, this is the way it was going to look. This is the way it's going to look. And these 12 men, these 12 leaders, will be leaders in God's millennial kingdom and in the kingdom, eternal kingdom for the future as well. Friends, Jesus isn't done. Let me leave you with this today. He's not done with calling people, right? I mean, we look at the 12 apostles. We called those 12 dudes. Those guys are the most important. They were the ones told to go and make disciples. The rest of us, hmm, actually, no. The apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus gave gifted people to the church, and he continues to do this to this day. In chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says this, And He, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to what? To equip you, if you're a saint in Christ, here today, for what? The work of ministry. We're all called. We're all called. Some of us are called to lowly servant roles. Helpful servant roles as leaders. Some of us are but all of us are called. And some of us are going to be, some of you in this room today need to be sent into service in the local church, into this community, or maybe somewhere else. That's God's plan for us. It started with Him beginning this new kingdom, calling 12 men to be the foundation of it. And those 12 men went and appointed elders in every city and every place that they planted churches, and that pattern's been going on. And then he gives gifted people to the church, a small apostle, a small P, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. You know, apostles, remember, are sent ones. Missionaries who go overseas are missionaries. We call them today because some people want to avoid calling them small A apostles. Let's maybe not do that. Let's maybe see it for what it is. It's Jesus calling and sending. Amen? Pray with me, would you?